Welcome to the Hacking Happy Podcast, a podcast designed to arm you with the tools and experiments that enable you to define happiness on your terms and inject more of it into each day. I'm your host, Penny Lacasso. I'm the world's first happiness hacker, and I have a bold mission, a mission to teach 10 million humans how to realize happiness on their terms by 2025. So if you're ready to ignite your self-belief and eject more of what makes you feel good into each day, let's get started. Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to another episode of the Hacking Happy podcast. This week sees us in part two of the little series I created around stories of transformation, where I bring to you real people with real stories of how they've transformed their lives to step into a space of living more wholeheartedly and in alignment with the things that truly matter to them. This week's story is a little different. It is the story of a dear friend of mine whose journey of transformation in many ways paralleled mine. We worked together in the corporate world for a couple of years and were strong allies. And then both stepped into different journeys of transformation and we've supported each other the whole way through. This person has also helped me with some of the work that I've done around adaptability and uh, stepping into creating something meaningful for my clients. So he's been a really strong influence in my journey and also in my work, which is why I wanted to share his story because it is truly unique. Aidan was massively successful in the corporate world and hugely regarded. And one day he decided to step away from it all because he had sort of a moment where he realised that what was most important to him was his son. His small son at the time who was diagnosed with autism. And so Aidan left a very successful career to become a full-time parent and stepped into uncertainty in order to also take a journey that evolved into one of magical self-discovery. So I'm now going to step over to our interview and let Aidan share his journey and his insights from transformation to help anyone who is stuck between the void of action and uncertainty. So I hope you enjoy. This story is truly special. Hello, my dear friend, Aidan Murphy. I am so excited to welcome you for the first time to the Hacking Happy podcast. Thank you. I'll take any opportunity to talk to you, as you well know. <laughs> Let's start with perhaps both of our fa- one of our favourite questions, which is tell us who you are as a human being. It's different every time, isn't it? That's why I love it. <laughs> I mean, this morning, I think mostly I'm a parent. I think a lot of my, you know, a lot of my inner narrative is about thinking about what I need to do and who I need to be to support my son right now. And and where that's coming into conflict with more emergent me as a, you know, returning to the world of work, me as an employee or whatever label you want to put on that. That's where a lot of my thinking is is landing up right about now. Mm. So you and I have shared a long sort of journey together. We mm. used to work 
at Shell together a very long time ago now, some nine years ago, eight years ago. I'm really interested in you sharing with our listeners or painting a picture of it for us of what your life looked like before you went through your personal transformation is what I like to call it. Uh, it was very different. There was no parent identity. There wasn't much of an identity at all, I think, beyond employee because I was very, very invested in my career. Some of those drivers, I think, were positive because it was in a very intellectually stimulating solving problems. Why not? And uh, I was getting plenty of problems to solve <laughs> doing my job. And in some ways, I think the energy and drive that I had put into it was coming from a partly pathological place. I think I'd confused the occasional positive performance meetings and pats on the head with love. And uh, a lot of that was, why else would I be working like 78 hours a week? So I was really working hard, but I never forget as I was as I was leaving, a habit of like uh, writing a lot of stuff down in notebooks. I never go back to the notes, but I always had this idea that, you know, if I write it down, I don't forget it. Mm. But obviously what I also do in them is doodle because quite a lot of meetings are frankly boring. And when I looked <laughs> at my doodles, you know, it was all these stick men with like these enormous weights on their back. <laughs> <laughs> why why didn't I notice this earlier? Yeah, so I think I was a bit blinkered. I can only say that from this perspective. I didn't feel like that at the time. At the time, I, I was enjoying myself. I really was focused on delivering what I'd been tasked to deliver. And I got to work with lots of really talented, smart, creative people. And um, there's something very nourishing uh, and engaging about that. And also, I think there was something inside me that was driving me along. It wasn't about what was right in front of me, you know. So, I mean, I was there when, you know, you were doing these things. And I love the analogy of weights on the back of a stick figure. <laughs> because, I mean, you had a lot of significance in terms of the roles that you had. You know, you were working on billion-dollar projects with lots of joint venture partners and trying to bring them all together. And, you know, it would be considered given the pressures around timelines and everything in a billion dollar project is there's a dire need to deliver it on time. There's a lot of pressure. So even though, you know, as you say, there were these signals and you were also excited and loving solving problems. Talk to us about, I suppose, your health at the time and I suppose how you would feel, like actually physically feel and perhaps a little bit about your inner voice. And what was going on in that space? You know, honestly, I don't know. You know, we, we, we sat and talked with Phil the other day, didn't we? And, and he um, very generously said, well, you must be doing well. You didn't look like this when you were working. I remember. <laughs> As in how healthy you looked. I hope that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think I had enough distance from myself or perspective to know the answer to that. And the reason that I, I say, you know, what's, you know, kind of frame my thought a little bit there is around inner voice. And I think 
I don't know, my narrative for good or ill around it since then is that um, staying in that environment helped me keep my inner voices at bay because those inner voices didn't really come out to make their feelings known to me until after I'd stepped out of, you know, a very secure professionally, a very financially rewarding professionally, very validating from an intellectual and ego perspective professionally environment. So in that world, all was quiet on the Western front. But when you say health, from the perspective of today, you know, when my son was born and uh, I was looking around for next roles, the thing that I always hold up about my health to myself, by the way, just in the spirit of lest we forget. Yeah, I was looking at jobs in Beijing. Mm. I was uh, thinking, I know it's the most polluted city in the world and I have a nine-month-old baby, but you can get face masks, right? (laughs) (laughs) Actually on websites looking at these particulate filters. And this seemed rational to me. So at the time, I don't think I had the ability to bystand myself in the way that you're talking about, uh, that I do now when I can look back and I just, you know, want to put my arm around my shoulder in those days and say, come on, mate, this is not right. It's so interesting what you say because there's so many things that I now look back on that was so, like, it's almost like, you know, my body was screaming at me. And I never, I always said, oh, you know, I left because I was unfulfilled. But I look back now and I look at how my health was and I was burnt out. Like, I remember never taking a sick day and Mm -hmm. sitting in bed, like, with the worst flu that you could possibly imagine, still diligently typing away on my computer and working from home. And thinking that that was okay and not taking the rest or the day off because I didn't, I wanted to be seen, you know, as productive, as high achieving and a day off, you know, didn't align with that inner narrative. And now I look back and I go, you were like, you're about to implode. I think I'm in the same spot in that I've been reading and a lot of stuff that talks about a little bit the dark side of some of the performance culture that comes from this idea of any request that is made of you is reasonable. And, you know, and talking about mindfulness and um, all these strategies to help you cope is only one side of the coin. Perhaps what you're being asked to cope with is not reasonable. But that's that's a piece that I was in no position to even consider and not because of I felt coerced in any way, but just because mentally it was it wouldn't even have occurred to me. It was like, you know, you know, thank you. And can I have some more? Mm. Whatever was given to me. But, you know, I remember, I never forget when I was putting together a job scope when I was hiring, and you know, you think about it and you consult with people and you try and think about, well, what could a person do when you make it, you know, fit for a, an individual and then numbers come out of a machine somewhere and it turns out you thought you had two people and now you've got one. That's all right. Just put those two job scopes together, <laughs> you know, and that helped me understand, oh, you know, nobody here has really any view of what is a reasonable thing to ask of a person. They're just asking because it needs to be done. And How often, though, does it go the reverse, right, where I don't know how many times I've moved on from jobs and they've replaced me and split the job into like two or three jobs. Yeah. Which is a little discomforting. <laughs> so, All complimentary. I mean, frame oh, it as you were sick all the time, then, yeah, discomforting is probably... <laughs> It's probably about the right end of the spectrum, hey. I remember my last boss in Perth, who you knew well, Shockey, saying to me, 
your skill set should be getting shit done. That is your brilliance. Mm. And I was like, oh, I'm going to wear that like a badge of honour. I love that people think I get shit done. And now I look back and, like you say, it was like I would just take more and more and more. And the more, and they say, you know, if you want something done, ask a busy person. I was damn busy because I never said no. I think uh, there's a lot in uh, sticking a full stop in the middle of that sentence, getting shit done. (laughs) So my next question is perhaps a little, a beautiful little poignant pause for us. Tell us. What was the moment where you said something's got to change? I think it was a kind of a cumulative thing, but there are two moments that stand out and it wasn't the face masks, disturbingly enough. (laughs) So my son, he was was born with an undescended testicle. We decided that he would have surgery to correct that. And that forced me to confront a lot of things. Mm. So he statistically of course, would be safer on that operating table than in the backseat of a car. But uh, you can't avoid the idea that they might not be around forever. And so I think that was a powerful, you know, standing in that hospital, he's in his little gown, you're cuddling him, he's got his head on your shoulder and you're walking around and you don't really know. I mean, not to over-dramatise, but in my gut, in my heart at that moment, you can't ignore the reality that, this might be the last time. Mm. And that was, that told me that something was different. And I didn't realise what until, you know, we were looking around at uh, childcare and not very much of it available. <laughs> I always used to joke, well, we're not, we're not going to have much luck because uh, we didn't register him for childcare preconception. We needed to be on the list before he was even dreamed about being born. But we found a place and we were looking around and they were showing us, you know, so proudly look at this book of photographs that you get. We do all this to take pictures of it. And I just realised at that point, I don't want a bloody book of photographs. I want to be in them. And I just, that identity of parent that I had thought was going to be somewhat of a part-time job in a certain sense, and mostly limited to the provision of resources. You know, I wrote to a friend of mine about it at the time. I said, uh, I've never experienced love like this in terms of its biology, you know, yeah. it just kicks down the doors and I love him with like a helpless joy and terror because I was just, it wouldn't be reasoned with or negotiated with, it was just a fact. So I had the opportunity instead of moving to Beijing to take a sabbatical for 12 months to do that. And so that is what I did. And I remember just with something that didn't seem like prophecy at the time, but later turned out to be and one of the ladies from HR said to me, oh, well, you know, you will be back. And there was a voice inside me that just said, no, I won't. It's so interesting how children can create perspective because I remember being in Perth when you and I worked there together and everything that we were doing for the two years that we were there was all for the future. It was for my three-year-old son future. So he was three then, he's 12 now, right? And we were working so hard for his future and everything, every time I came home, I was planning for the future. Everything was for the future. It was not for the now. And there was this little voice at my feet that kept speaking. And it was so interesting, again, in hindsight to look back, but it was so poignant in terms of my transformation where all he ever wanted was time. Yeah. All he ever asked for was time. He never asked for any material things. He just wanted 
our time. And we were so busy thinking about and working for his future that it came at the cost of the thing that he wanted, but I equally think needed most. And that for me, like, so it's interesting in terms of what you say, I completely connect. So you took this one year sabbatical and how lucky was I because you decided to come to Melbourne? The feeling is mutual. <laughs> and because then, I didn't know anyone else here, you know, and so just the feeling of there being a friendly face, it was very, uh, it was very comforting. And I was grateful to you enormously, you know, for both your presence and the quality of your presence, not just in that first year, but you said that we've been on this journey together. I hope it's still going on. <laughs> It's not going anywhere, my friend. Hey there, thought I'd just press pause for a moment and ask you a question. I wonder if, like I used to, you use work as a form of escapism to avoid feelings that bubble under the surface and whisper to you constantly, this is not the life I want to live. But what if it doesn't have to be this way? What if I told you you could bounce out of bed feeling confident in your path because you know what action to take to feel aligned and in motion with the life you long for? If you'd like to do this year differently, shift gears into freedom mode, let your priorities drive your time, not the other way around, feel courageous and confident in uncertainty and holistically supported on the journey, Flourish Forward Coaching might be right for you. Go to flourishforwardcoaching.com to book a discovery call today. Yeah, you are such a significant part of my evolution in terms of your friendship and your ears. And uh, I wouldn't say advice because I don't feel you give advice. I feel Ugh. you're probably your gift is the questions that you ask and how they make me think. Mm. So you came to Melbourne. Talk to us about when you realised something had to change and you took this sabbatical, what was the very first action you took to make any progress around what this different life that you were stepping into would look like? <laughs> you flatter me. Uh, I didn't make any progress at all. My first actions were entirely about trying to maintain the old life. Yeah. <laughs> I love the honesty. Yes. The ridiculous amount of money I spent. Not that it's uh, a bad thing, but, you know, getting the accreditation through the Institute of Company Directors. Oh, and, I, did know, you know I, mean? I did the I same did the same thing. My ego just like saying, just because I've got now only a single stakeholder <laughs> doesn't mean I should leave behind the days of billion dollar P&Ls, you know. So, no, I fought tooth and nail to retain, you know, keep that sense of identity alive, absolutely flying in the face of reality. In the, you know, when you live in these wonderful corporate expense bubbles and you go to fancy restaurants and people treat you really, really well because they're paid to do so, it can give you a rather inflated sense of your own self-importance. And when you're on the tram with uh, a baby on one hip and three bags of shopping and there are avocados rolling all over the place, you realise you know, nobody gives a shit, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's a good thing. So it took me a while 
to cure myself of that. And I think that was really important because people can become instrumental when you're in that mindset. You know, all this stuff that we are learning together at the moment about humanistic and these type of approaches and, and what your needs are as a human being and what they might be. And when they're not met, how that can change your perception. I think, you know, when I was looking for work and looking for jobs at that time, there was that element to it. I think I was seeing people in terms of what they might mean rather than in terms of who they were. I really needed a few trips on that tram to shake off those old ideas of my place in the world and who I was. So when you got your avocados, you got your <laughs> bags. <laughs> if you look back now, what would you say was perhaps the most impactful action you took? I didn't come until I realized that Elliot was autistic. I think that's when I realized, yeah, I think my assessment of myself at that point was that good enough parenting in the dictionary should have my little face stuck next to it because I'd read all the books and you know, I was deluded in a lot of ways about different things. But then a parenting challenge came my way that I just felt profoundly unable to cope with. And that really started me, yeah, changing, I think. And because it, with neurodiversity, it's not like something where, oh, there's nothing wrong, particularly, although I had to work to understand that. So it's not like, oh, you know, he's got a, a flu or a cough or a cold, and you take him to a doctor and there's an answer and they package you up and pat you on the head and send you on your little way, you know. This is about he's wired in a way for a world that's not particularly suited to him. What do you do about that? And there isn't an easy answer. I couldn't use my capacity to dive into the literature and read paper after paper and get it right. I couldn't do anything first. I think I needed that experience. It wasn't something that I did. It was something that wasn't done to me, but it had to originate outside of myself. I needed that disruption to knock me onto a different track. As someone who has been along your side or by your side for the whole journey, I'm always astounded how this corporate professional who was so well regarded and accoladed doing all of this amazing work has this moment or these moments and this child into their life and what you did with that sort of awakening almost I've never seen anyone immerse themselves so wholeheartedly in understanding how they can support their child to navigate this world as you say like the level of learning and the level of practical application and the way you approached it was quite profound from the outside looking in. Not to mention alongside it, as I say, this serious corporate professional who then went and did, God knows, is now a professional in improv, went and did <laughs> Alexander Technique, sung on a stage, like so you can do stand-up comedy, like all of these things that you did to kind of deal with the demons and reinvent yourself. It was pretty profound to watch and it still is and then you come and study psychology with me just because they all have a purpose <laughs> I mean what I didn't sometimes realize in those moments was that I wasn't actually responding to what was in front of even then and I found myself exchanging one eight-hour work week for another I think there was definitely you know there's multiple narratives that you can tell about this and some of them are pathological. I think, you know, through heaps of therapy and these kind of things, then I've come to realize that not a small part of my zeal in parenting my own child is about reparenting myself, you know, about this idea of for good or ill, I 
I want to give him a better script than I got. I got nothing but praise for my mum. And she was a single mum with like not a millionth of the resources that I've got in terms of, you know, intellectually, capacity-wise, emotionally. And she was raising two kids on her own. Frankly, it's miraculous I'm alive. Never mind that uh, she gave me the capacity to go out there and do all this work to kind of root out the stuff that was in me that was, um, you know, holding me in the past and keeping me from responding to what is. And with a child, as you were saying, responding to what is, the little voice at your feet that's asking you to be here now is often one of the most impactful things that you can do. Improv is very good at teaching you that. No one wants to watch two people on a stage fighting over what the joke is about. They want to watch two people on the stage relating to each other as they are in that moment. And I'll watch that all day, you know. So that very practical theatrical approach, but also, you know, the stuff on complexity that we were playing around with and understanding about how in those emergent situations, disintermediation between the source of information and the decision makers is important. Well, absolutely. How can I respond to my kid if I'm not here? How can I respond to my kid if I'm thinking about the next appointment or, you know, all these other project management roles that I had set up for myself, mobilizing an army of occupational therapists or speech pathologists or neuropsychologists or you name it. What does your life look like now? <laughs> he doesn't need me anymore in the same way. So he's at school right now. And I think the thing that gives me joy about that is the stories that I hear because he's mischievous, man. I remember some teacher telling me, this is bad parenting. <laughs> some teacher telling me that, you know, oh, in music today. So, all right, music, sensory wise, this is not going to be his friend. I can see where this is going. They've been trying to get him to do something that he didn't want to do. And what he did was he stuck out his tongue and he turned around and he pulled his trousers down and waggled his bum at the teacher and then <laughs> ran off. <laughs> I try not to laugh like that in the moment. And I just wanted to make sure that they understood, you know, this is not how we communicate with each other at home in case you think, <laughs> in case you think this is what I teach him. I don't think that's something I do on stage either. But what that told me is he's there as himself. He's not overwhelmed. He's not, you know, the sensory stuff or whatever he's dealing with in those moments. He's not so overwhelming that he can't be the mischievous little bugger that I've raised to go out and play in the world. You're welcome. You know? <laughs> I love and so now with this new version of myself that's grown and changed over the last five years, then it's now time to yeah, go back into the world of work paid work. I didn't feel like I particularly had my feet up for the five years that I was looking after him full-time pretty much on my own, you know. But um, yeah, organisational work, should we say. Well, you didn't. I can tell you, you didn't have your feet up for the five years because you and I worked together quite a bit and it was perhaps some of the most enjoyable and progressive time for me because what a lot of people wouldn't know is the framework and the assessment all around attentional adaptability. You were a huge part in helping me bring that to life. It was. Oh profoundly helpful to have something <laughs> to support my sanity you know, I could uh, see a direct line between doing something and there being a positive outcome because children don't always work that way but yeah we had a lot of fun we did so talk to me about did you have a coach who helped you on this journey at all have you worked with any coaches I did although I will say uh, it was a coach who didn't coach me <laughs> <laughs> 
I got brought up in a corporate world, right? So I was forever being coached. And very often that looked like the classic management shit sandwich. You know, I've got a piece of bad feedback to give you. And someone taught me that I've got to say something nice about you twice to bookend that. And it used to annoy me to get that because I could see it. And being coached used to annoy me in the same way because I often had the feeling that the person in front of me was present to their process and not to me, you know? And so I'd say something and you, you could almost hear like whatever mechanic, whether it was like grow or acronym that they had in their head kind of click into gear and then have them present that. And I thought, well, I know those mechanics too. If it was that simple, I'd have done it. And uh, I remember I was watching some coaching videos and, you know, learning about different techniques in that space. And uh, I came across this guy, David Drake, who pioneered narrative coaching. And I've done a fair chunk of work with him since then. And when I was watching him on uh, kind of a coaching demonstration or, you know, talking around the theory of it, he's like, oh, most people need more goals. Like they need a hole in the head. You know, if it was that easy, they'd have done it already. Mm. What they need is someone to be present to them right now. And for when people say, oh, I'm lost, not for them to immediately start talking about structures around that and saying, yeah, you're lost. How's that feel? It's so interesting that you say that because I just spoke to another friend for this series on transformation and she said the most powerful thing that her coach has done for her is just create the space to know that it's okay. Mm. And I was like, and she said, it sounds so simple and people might not get it and people say I'm crazy when I tell them how much I'm spending. But she said, I can't tell you how valuable that is. I'm just... uh just to echo that so one piece of work that I did with him so I went on a a, a, like a narrative coaching retreat but it was all about getting present to what is and I had completely locked away my emotions and my body as a source of uh, information and input in my life well I worked for a large company of like uh, northwest European engineers you know I (laughs) I had absorbed a mindset whereby my body was an inconvenient piece of meat for carting the most important bit, which was my brain around the place. And I was just waiting for a version of Excel big enough so that we could solve the world and then just put it all <laughs> to rest, you know. What I mean? And then I went on this retreat and I found out that my body had an awful lot to say. And I was doing this somatic work. And at one point, I was, you know, I'd framed it up for myself as I was going there to look at professionally, what would I be saying yes to? But of course, that wasn't the real thing that I was there for. And there was an exercise I was doing a somatic one where I'd written the word yes on uh, this piece of paper. And I'd found, you know, just without thinking too hard about it, I'd put it in different places in the room. And what I found was that um, I had very strong feelings in my body about standing in those different parts of the room. And uh, I learned that, uh, well, I see that here in the room, I've put it in this place and it feels a bit like improv. And these are the places where you're saying yes to what is and how my body feels so light and, you know, palpable physical sensations. I'm conscious while I'm saying how weird it sounds to the me that was forever running spreadsheets, but it's a fact. I can't deny my own experience. And another place where it's like, yes, to things that I said, where I didn't quite know uh, what was going to happen before I got in there. But I said yes to the experience. You know, when I was a kid at university, I had chemistry and computers in my mind. And they said, oh, you speak a bit of French when I go to France. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, why not? (laughs) And that was an adventure. But the other two halves of the room where I found a way to put yes underneath a lectern. And that was all the times that I'd said no. 
I'd said yes, but I denied my experience or I'd hidden my expertise. And there was one corner of the room where I said yes to relationships that I shouldn't have said yes to. And as I walked into that corner of the room, I can't, I can't explain it. My body, I'm even feeling it now as I'm talking to you, my body just mm. froze up and like, you know, every muscle tensed and my chest so tight, you know, I just dropped to the ground. And in that moment, we were paired up on that exercise and Cal, a friend of mine, she just put her hand on my shoulder. And when I came to finish that retreat and we stepped across a symbolic threshold and uh, David invited us, if there's anyone you want to say something to around the circle, you know, do it now. You know, I couldn't, I don't think I was coherent because I was crying so much, but I just couldn't express my gratitude to her for having been there in that moment so that when I was in that place, I wasn't alone. Mm. Oh, I almost feel like I need to end it there, but I can't. I've got one more question. <laughs> I love every time I speak to you. I just, you know, it's like, yeah, you're someone who's, com- I just, I, I love being around you, but you know that. Mm. Same, same. What advice would you have for someone seeking to undertake a transformation like you did? I can imagine that there's some visceral response when I say the word advice because advice just isn't your bag. <laughs> I'm surprised you can't see it. <laughs> I like, as someone who's had too much to say too often in the past, I have tried to make it a reflexive action to me to have that prescription without diagnosis is malpractice idea in my mind. So can I position it differently? Of what course. question would you give them that you think might be helpful for them to consider? So, of course, I feel like I can stick an asterisk on this with all the usual disclaimers that US drug companies put on their advertisements. (laughs) (laughs) Your mileage may vary. I tell you, the thing that's actually served me the most would be what am I not accepting? Mm. You know, I think sometimes the idea of acceptance gets a bad press because... It can carry this idea of passivity with it. And, you know, aren't we all encultured to be movers and shakers in our world? And doesn't seem to be commensurate with the idea of accepting what is. One of the pieces of therapy that I did was trauma-focused. And the frame in which you approach that is to kind of understand that there are different parts of yourself who are all kind of in a non-pathological way, sort of separate personalities. Um, I think this is not so far divorced from many people's experience because don't we all have that inner critic? And I remember very clearly how brutal that voice had been once I'd stepped out of the kind of reassuring and reinforcing world of a kind of a corporate bubble. And the only thing that changed that was where in one moment in a therapy session, I could get myself to a place of compassion for that voice. Wow, you are saying the most hurtful, the most terrible, the most spiteful things to me. What are you frightened of? It must be terrifying for you for this to seem better. And in that place of acceptance, I could begin a dialogue with that part and understand uh, what it was responding to, which is not, of course, what is in front of me. And since then, I felt a great deal more peace with that part of myself, both in terms of being able to hear what it says without attachment and without judgment, but also because 
you know, in the middle of one of those sessions, that piece of me was speaking and just suddenly stopped short and said, wait a minute, you've done nothing wrong. Mm. And so now I also find that instead of beating me down, sometimes that voice is there to offer me help to pick me up. I love that. It's so interesting that we came to a point where we were talking before I close out, I just want to say, which I haven't done before, but we're talking about how powerful a good coach and equally a bad coach can be. <laughs> and I think, you know, and again, I don't think I've shared this, but you've perhaps been the most poignant coach in my whole transition in terms of the questions you've asked and the conversations we've had. And for that, I just want to say I'm extremely grateful. Hmm. It was a privilege to be there, Penny. So we're going to leave it there, my dear friend. And like you say, the journey continues. <laughs> yeah, we need to get our psychology homework done. <laughs> yeah. so you stop chatting and go to the work. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for joining me for today's episode of the Hacking Happy podcast. If there was something that ignited a flame or sparked a thought within you from this conversation, please take a screenshot and share it on your preferred social media platform. Feel free to tag me in Hacking Happy Co or Penny Lacalso. Reviews are so important to reaching my goal of making 10 million beautiful humans just like yourself happier. So if you enjoyed your listen, please take a moment, leave a review and a rating on your preferred podcast listening platform. Until the next episode, remember, happiness looks good on you. Bye for now.